Well, good morning, everyone. I'm recording this earlier on in the week from the privacy of my bedroom where I've been in lockdown before I go for my operation. Uh, so I, I do want to thank you now for all of your prayers. Uh, and let's start this morning. We're going to be looking at the last section of the uh, letter to the Galatians, the end of chapter six, which should have just been read to you. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we thank that it is a living word. We thank you that you speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we think about these things this morning. Help us to understand what it is that you're saying to each one of us. And Lord, we pray that you would challenge us through your word. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Now, have you ever had one of those moments where somebody points out that something you've been doing your whole life, you've been doing wrong? For example, I was in my 30s before somebody pointed out to me that I had been peeling bananas wrong my whole life. Apparently, the, and it is true, uh, the easiest way to open a banana is not through the end with the stalk on it, but through the other end. Give it a try. It's actually true. Uh, and then there's those things that you've always believed, uh, ways you've always understood things to work or ways you've always looked at the world. It's like perhaps the whole dieting thing. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I've always thought, and probably most of you did as well, that if you want to lose weight and to get into shape, all you need to do is eat less, you know, cut out fat, do some exercise. But apparently that's not true. That's what all the experts tell us now. Now there are dozens of theories about weight loss. You've got diets that cut out all kinds of weird things from what you eat. Uh, and some of these diets mean you can gorge yourselves, yourself on things like meat and dairy. It's amazing. Uh, according to some, it's more important when you eat than what you eat. And doing apparently 10 minutes of the right exercise is better than doing an hour of the wrong kind of exercise. Go figure. But one example stands out for me, actually. Um, when it comes to experiencing a, a complete change in world view, let me tell you about this. I, I was uh, teaching, uh, and at the time it was a subject called citizenship, to a class of GCSE students. And we were talking about the basic economics of how much they would need to earn to sustain the lifestyles they expected to have when they left education. And it became apparent at this point that a large proportion of the class I was teaching were quite happy to consider not working and living off of the benefit system. I probed a bit further, asking them how they thought that would be sustainable. I mean, if everyone decided to take that path, where would the money come from to pay for all of these benefits? The answer came back quickly. The government will pay. I probed further. And where will they get the funds from, I asked. Well, this resulted in a little bit of head scratching, but soon the consensus was reached. They'll just have to print more. I mean, isn't that what they do at the Mint? Now, with recent events, uh, I think they might have known something that we all didn't know. But this then resulted 
in the shattering of many illusions as we talked about the British taxation system, something they'd never really got their heads around. There are fundamental truths in life that can be hard to grasp, but that once you grasp them, everything changes. Now we've come to the end of Galatians, but there's a lot going on in this last section of Paul's letter. And for the benefit of the young people who weren't with us for the first, you know, four and a half chapters of this book, let me uh, first put all of us in the picture this morning and just catch us up, get us up to speed. First, we need to remember what was going on in Galatia. Galatia was a region right in the middle of modern day Turkey. Hence, the church in this area was largely comprised of people who were not Jewish. They would have come from a population that worshipped household idols and went to local temples where Greek and Roman gods were worshipped. Paul had come into their region along with his fellow missionaries and they had preached the gospel to them. It was a radical message and it turned their world upside down. See, they had always believed that if you wanted anything from the gods, you needed to pay for it and to win their approval with sacrifices and gifts. But when they heard the Christian message, these people turned from their false gods and put their trust in Jesus. At that point, they understood that Jesus had died on a cross to pay for their sins, to rescue them from the darkness that they were living in, to bring them into a loving and blessed relationship with the God that made them. So far, so good. Wonderful. But then came along the Jewish false teachers. They did not believe that Jesus had done everything necessary to save people. That becomes apparent. Instead, they believed that there were a lot of things that needed to be added to the gospel message. In short, they thought that these Gentile converts needed to become more Jewish. These men had never really grasped the gospel. I mean, the real gospel. So their heritage and their religion was so ingrained in them that they were unable to really grasp that radical, world-changing truth of what Jesus had done. Now, they were not anti-Jesus. They just didn't think Jesus was enough. Well, we illustrated this earlier on in the letter with, with the idea of a rocket Jesus is like that big booster engine that gets you up into space, the big launch. But then, in the view of these Jewish false teachers, then you needed those other little rockets. You know, the little ones that hold you in orbit, the rockets of Judaism, to maintain your orbit lest you come crashing down to earth again. So you had Jesus for the start, and then you needed to carry on by adding things. They taught these new Christians that they would not be complete until they got themselves circumcised, ate kosher food, started keeping Jewish feasts. And when Paul got wind of what was going on, he hit the roof. 
Uh, and you can see it in chapter one. In fact, he opens the letter with some really cutting words. Uh, if you look at chapter one, verse nine, you can read some of them. He says this, as we have already said, so I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. I mean, that's shorthand for let him go to hell, literally. These false teachers were trying to sidestep and diminish the cross in favour of external religious practices like circumcision. And so he says, actually later in, in the letter, in chapter 5, As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Ask your mum. That would certainly be one way to stop the spread of their dangerous teaching, wouldn't it? And so the purpose, purpose of this letter is to set the record straight and to soundly refute what the, the false teachers were in fact saying. A fundamental flaw, you see, in the way that they were thinking was that they had failed to understand the purpose of the law that God had given to his people. Again, everything was turned on its head from the way that they were used to thinking. They thought that the law had been given as a means to save people. You know, just keep these rules, live by this code and God will accept you. But in reality, that law, says Paul, had been given to lead them to Christ. How does the law lead us to Christ then, all of those do's and don'ts? It leads us to him when we try to keep it and discover we can't keep it. All the law can ever do is, is rub our faces in our sin, it just shows us up for what we are. But in doing so, its purpose is to make us turn instead to something that can save us. In Paul's words, to turn to God's promise. Before even giving that law, says Paul, God promised a saviour, the seed of Abraham, who would justify all who put their trust in him. Instead of turning to the law to change them from the outside, God's people now had the Holy Spirit at work within. I mean, if you've been coming to the series, that's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about, isn't it? We have been freed from the tyranny of that old law that used to condemn us. You did that! Now you're for it! And now instead, all there is for us is the law of love. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbour as yourself. Summed up the law. A few weeks ago, uh, we looked at the first part of chapter six and we saw a bit of what that looks like. Do you remember? Bearing each other's burdens, helping to restore our brothers or our sisters who, who stumble, who get caught in their sin. That's love in action. Paul alerts them to the danger with a loud and clear call. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This was the big issue. See, the false teachers had never had that dramatic, world-changing moment when the gospel turned their thinking upside down. And because of that, they were leading these impressionable new Christians back into the slavery that they themselves were still actually in. Slaves. Well, now that we're all back up to speed, we're going to uh, have a song and then... I want to show you how Paul ends the letter with a serious warning to us all, followed by an invitation. So now let's look at the warning in verse 6. Paul writes this, Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. These verses are all about doing good. You can see it, can't you? Look at verse 9, look at verse 10. It's all about doing good. In fact, I would suggest that the key thought here in these verses we just read is verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. Well, that might seem a little bit odd, having just skipped through the letter and seen that the gospel is about being justified by faith and not by works, by trusting a promise rather than obeying laws. But this is actually very helpful at this point, because it's an area we can all often get confused about. What Paul calls doing good in verse 9 is actually defined for us in verse 8 as sowing to please the Spirit. They appear to be parallel expressions, both saying the same thing, really. The good we are to do is those acts that are done in step with the Holy Spirit. And notice that Paul puts it across as a cause and effect relationship. That is, sowing to please the Spirit is, in verse 8, what results in eternal life. That means that these good works, this fruit of the Spirit, is an essential indispensable part of what it means to belong to Christ. Doing good then is not the way we earn our salvation, but the fruit of the Spirit is the necessary evidence that you truly are saved. And that needs to be clear because of the first half of verse 8, look, that those who do not do this, those who instead so to please their sinful nature, will reap destruction. This means it's really important to ask ourselves, what is it that we are sowing in this life? Clearly, it's very serious, this, isn't it? But it's actually not new. He said the same thing, actually, in chapter 5, if you remember, where 
After describing the acts of the sinful nature in verses 19 to 20, Paul says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the thrust in these verses is about how we invest what God has given us in this life. You see, when we truly understand the gospel, it changes the way we think about everything. We understand suddenly that this world that we live in is passing away and that the only place worth storing up treasure, as Jesus said, is in heaven. We understand then that, that we are actually only stewards and caretakers of the good things that God gives us. And that the best thing to do with them is actually to invest them in God's kingdom. One area that Paul highlights this here is in verse six. Take a look. The ministry of God's word. He says anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, it should strike us that given all the options, this is an area that Paul decides to highlight. Invest in getting the word of God spread and broadcast into the world. Now, we looked at this briefly a couple of months ago when we commented that those who have been set apart for teaching the Bible to others ought to be well supported. I mean, that's an instruction that gets repeat, re repeated in various places in the New Testament. But let me take it a bit further here and suggest that the ministry of God's word ought to be a top priority for us in how we use the resources God has given us. We ought to be thinking about these things. Uh, can we support Bible training? for the next generation of ministers, ministers perhaps in this country, ministers perhaps overseas. Can we support the translation of God's word into other languages? Could we be paying for leaders to serve on camps where the Bible is taught or, or even for children to go and to learn? And as we read on, don't you find it also interesting in the next verses that, that the picture given to us for how to use our resources in Galatians 6 is that of a farmer's field. That struck me because Jesus uses the same picture, doesn't he, to illustrate the spreading of God's word in the parable of the sower and the soils. You remember the seed is the word of God. But having said that, when it comes to what we do with our resources in this life, there are some fundamental principles that this illustration tells us are at work here. Well, first of all, the seed you sow determines the crop that comes up. So if you plant sunflower seeds, for example, you're going to get sunflowers, right? Unless you're, something strange is going on. You're not going to get tomatoes growing when you plant sunflower seeds. What you put into the ground, what you sow, determines what you're going to get out at the end. If you sow that which is motivated by jealousy, anger and selfishness, you know, as Paul describes, sowing to please your sinful desires, then the harvest will be destruction. What you put in is what comes out. If you sow then those things that please the spirit, 
motivated by love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control. Well, the harvest is going to be eternal life. The second thing to note here as a principle, really, is that growing a crop takes time. There's a delay, obviously, isn't there, between sowing and reaping. But that, don't let that wait, that delay, make you weary, says Paul. And don't give up. The harvest will come. We're all susceptible to becoming very weary and discouraged in doing good. You know, I feel it myself. Whether it's a person you've been trying to help who just never seems to change or trying to keep visiting someone when, when, you're, when your days are busy and there's increasing pressure on your time. And why can't somebody else do it? Or, or perhaps a ministry that we do regularly that never seems to get any recognition. It's wearying, isn't it? If that's the case for you, then let verse 9 encourage you, as it has me, and sustain you. Because Paul says here, and reminds us of a promise, doesn't he? There will be a harvest at the proper time. Your good work has not gone unnoticed by the only one whose opinion actually matters. And conversely, verse 7, God is not mocked. For those who sow to please themselves, beware. That which is sown will also come to light. There may be a delay, perhaps. You might think it doesn't matter that you got away with it. But be sure, your sins will find you out. So here's the question then, as we come to the end of this second part. What will be the harvest reaped from the way that you are using what God has given you? What will come to light as a result of the life you are living in years to come? Listen well to what Paul says here. Therefore, he says in verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You know, it's an urgent call here, isn't it? To take every opportunity to invest all that you can in the right place. Be it your time, your energy, your talents, your strength, your influence, your money. And kids, also, if you're in the room with us now, then please do listen. You are never too young to start investing your life in sowing to please the spirit. Can I challenge you to use whatever it is that God has given you to love and to bless your family here at church? Think about how you can be a champion for God's word. I believe even the youngest can do that. What good things could you share with those who teach you? Perhaps you could tell them how much you appreciate them. Perhaps you could write them a card. The earlier that we start sowing, the more time there is for a harvest to grow. Well, let's uh, look at this last little section of chapter six. It seems like as Paul brings his letter to a close, he grabs the pen from his secretary so that the ending has a particularly personal note. Look at verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand, says Paul. In these last verses, then, we're, we're presented with an invitation. As with the previous section, there are 
two options again, two categories, two camps. Who will you align yourself with? What will you boast about? Actually, Paul wants to know here. Because two mindsets are presented to us. On the one hand, you've got the false teachers. Remember them? Take a look at what makes them tick in verses 12 to 13. Paul writes, those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they might boast about your flesh. These men then are all about external or outward impressions. And you can be sure they came across as very impressive. The trouble with being so concerned, though, about outward impressions is that the false gospel that they ended up preaching only ever went skin deep. Why, why do you think they did this? Well, I'd suggest it's for the same reason that many people do the same thing today to avoid persecution to avoid being given a hard time, to avoid people's disapproval. Preaching the true gospel means preaching the cross of Christ. And the message of the cross is highly offensive to the human heart. The message of the cross tells us that we are all sinners, every one of us, that good people and bad people are all alike on a level footing before God. Neither of them can give themselves a, a, you know, some kind of a leg up before God. The message of the cross tells us that we are too weak to help ourselves. We can't even begin to save ourselves. The message of the cross tells us that no amount of our best religion or our best morality makes the blindest bit of difference with God. Of your own resources, you cannot please God. Everything you do is tainted with sin. You're lost, says the gospel of the cross. You have a debt you can never pay. You need rescuing. And what's more, there's only one person you can turn to, and that's Jesus Christ. And you must humble yourself before him and own your poverty, your sin and your desperate need. I mean, that is an offensive message, isn't it? Bible teacher Tim Keller comments saying this. If someone understands the cross, it is either the greatest thing in their life or it is repugnant to them. If it is neither of those two things, they haven't understood it. That's good, isn't it? The false teachers never presented this message. Because all they cared about was the approval and the admiration of others. They loved the idea, you can picture it, can't you, of, of pitching up in Galatia as experts in the religion of the Jewish God, the God of their ancestors, and telling the people about how to worship him correctly, how to do it by the book. They wanted the boasting rights, yes, you know, Paul started a work in these foreign lands, but they had overseen the finishing of the work, taking it all the way, you know, properly, doing it right, circumcision, correct observance of the law. Theirs was a message 
actually approved by the Roman Empire. But theirs was a gospel that simply bounced off the surface. It went no more than skin deep. And on the other hand, you have Paul. Have a look at verse 14. This is what he says about his message. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Paul's was a gospel that boasted only of the cross. And believe you me, that was a weird sentence to say. His was a gospel that says, I contribute nothing to my salvation. It's at the cross that Jesus did it all. So I will boast about that. Persecution can do its worst. This is the only message that cuts to the heart and transforms a person from the inside out. This is a message so radical that it crucifies the world to us and us to the world. What does that mean? Well, it's a message that crucifies the world to us. The world is exposed and lifted up. I see it now for what it is, and it holds no value to me now that I have that which is far, far more valuable. As Paul says elsewhere, now I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. And so with this message, I no longer need the approval of this world. Nothing in this world holds power over me. I am truly free, a citizen of heaven, a child of God. And this message crucifies us to the world. For the world despises us and thinks we're fools that we should deny ourselves and follow a crucified saviour. This is a message then that will bring persecution because it's offensive. Indeed, actually, that's how you can tell whose gospel is really right in this scenario. Paul's or the false teachers. Paul actually gives his final credentials as an apostle of Christ in verse 17 here, when he says, finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul had scars, persecution scars. The Judaizers, they bear no such scars because theirs is a message that pleases the world and causes no offence. Ultimately, no outward act that they can do means anything, says Paul. Look, all that really matters, he says, is a new creation. Outward acts, you see, are done by the hands of men. But a new creation is the supernatural work of God. Only he creates. We cannot save ourselves. You know, we don't even have the raw materials. That's kind of what he's saying, isn't it? What is needed then is for God to step in and make things new. Paul describes this actually earlier on in the letter as having been, I think, 
crucified with Christ so that we no longer live. We're gone. But he says Christ lives in us. Bible teacher John Piper describes this new creation brilliantly as he, he says this. It's the mindset of utter reliance on Christ day by day. The new creation is the power of Christ's life unleashed in us when we lean on him. So here is the choice, an invitation that we have here at the end of this letter. Will you live for this world or will you live for eternity? You need to count the cost a cost the false teachers were not willing to pay because they lived for the approval of this world. Don't follow their example. The other option is, will you join Paul as he boasts in the cross, in what Jesus Christ has done? Will you, as he puts it, live by the rule of this true gospel and come, as verse 16 says, to know the peace and the mercy of God. That's the option before you. And Paul closes with verse 18, asking that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Amen. Let's pray. Father, help us to fully grasp the message of the cross. May it be our boast that Jesus Christ has done it all, that Sinners though we were, and enemies of God, he has redeemed us and brought us newness of life, brought us into your family. May we live then in newness of life, denying ourselves, sowing to please the Spirit, employing and investing the good things you've given us in the proclamation of your word for your glory, for the expansion of your kingdom. Father, please help us not to live for this world, but to live for the next world. And help us to guard our hearts, we pray, from adding anything to the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask these things. Amen.